Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. So, this morning is part of our current series called Jesus Is. The subject title for this morning is Jesus Is Returning. Now, for many of you, you've heard me discuss my position on the return of Jesus um, and how it all will take place. To some degree, you've heard that uh, before, so I'm not going to get too uh, much into that. I'm going to talk about how we handle the time before Jesus returns rather than to discuss how I think Jesus will return. However, Uh, We're going to begin with Matthew 24, so please turn there in your Bibles. I'm just going to read eight verses just to illustrate some of the challenges that that occur when engaging with this subject. If it was an easy subject, we'd all pretty much agree on it. The fact that there are so many books written and articles written and videos made by people who have um, more PhDs than you and I have cups of coffee a day, Uh, It just illustrates the complexity of this subject. Um, But we still need to engage with the subject because it's part of the teachings of Jesus. I talked to Lucas a few weeks ago about whether we need to do a a kind of a midweek Bible teaching series on this. And he gave me one of those looks that he gives me when I say something to him that he wants to kind of dismiss but doesn't want to offend me. And he was kind of saying through his body language that, yeah, that's a nice idea, Dave, but I'm not so sure you'll get a great deal of take-up on that. Maybe we need to stick to more practical issues of Christianity rather than this conceptual stuff. My response to that was this, that if Jesus takes some time to talk about his return or the consummation of the coming together of all of the things of God's kingdom, then it is worth studying, but probably not able to do thoroughly on a, on a Sunday morning. So what we're going to do, as I said, we're going to look at some verses from Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 24, verses 1 to 8. But then move from that, we'll pivot into dealing with the subject of what we do in the interim as we are waiting for Jesus to uh, return. So, right, without further ado, Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, as Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to his buildings. Jesus replied to them, do you see these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and if you know the the topography and the geography of of, um, Jerusalem, I've been privileged to be there a few times. It's not far away, actually, the, the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount. You go through the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. You go up the hill, and you can get a nice vantage point to look across at the Temple. Uh, they say, and what will be the signs of your coming, and I'll unpack that word coming in a moment, and the end of the age. Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that you, but see that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of the labor pains. Now, you don't need to turn uh, there, uh, but I'm just going to read you two verses now from Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 says, I continued watching the vision in the night, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming. And there's that word coming again. Uh, with clouds of heaven, and he was approaching the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Okay, so let me just summarize in two or three minutes what is going on here. The disciples looking at the temple, and at that point we can kind of understand that they believed that Jesus was God's son. He'd been sent as, as the Messiah. And so they were expecting something more dramatic to happen than this Jesus person as the Messiah to walk around healing people and telling them that their sins were forgiven. They expected this geopolitical change. They wanted the Roman Empire to have a bloody nose because they had come back with the kind of strength of God to vanquish their enemies and get them out of Jerusalem. This wasn't happening. And so they were frustrated and they were saying to Jesus, what is the, what is the things that we should be looking for? When's the timing of the coming and, and the end of the age. Now, when they used that word coming, they didn't understand that Jesus was coming back again because they didn't even understand that he was going to go. It wasn't a question in their head. They had no concept of Jesus' return because they didn't have a concept of Jesus going. They were just going with the flow of the Messiah, waiting for him to do what they had expected him to do. So why do they use this word coming, and why do we assume that it has to do with the coming again of Jesus? Now, some people would say, oh, well, we've got this vantage point now. We can look back 2,000 years and better understand what Jesus would have been intending through those words. And there are certain cases when we can, from our own vantage point 2,000 years later, be able to piece and look at some things in a different way. However, one of the fundamental building blocks of Building a correct interpretation of a Bible passage is you have to define what it meant to the hearers at the time. That is the thing that holds biblical theology together. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative, what we come down to is how do we understand how it would have been interpreted at the time. And that gives us a great strength when we're defending the faith. When a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and says, I want to talk to you about the return of Jesus. And they try to explain to you that when, when in 1914 they established the League of Nations as the precursor to the uh, United Nations and the European Union, that that was actually one of the first invisible returns of Jesus. And then you go to Matthew 24 where it talks about how lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And we say, well, actually, that doesn't fit with the Scripture. How could Jesus come invisibly in and establish this kind of political entity? And we consider that as being biblically accurate. And that's the point. In order to defend doctrine, we need to ascertain what it meant at the time. 
And that language of coming, that language that they associate with Jesus, is language from Daniel chapter 7, and it's talking about the ascension of the Son of Man into the presence of Yahweh in order to fully establish his kingdom, reign, and rule. So the purpose initially of Matthew 24, the talk of Jesus' coming, is not a coming to earth, it's a coming into the presence of God to fully establish the dominion of Jesus Christ on the earth. It is a prophetic statement, yes, but not to do with Jesus' second coming, but to do with what he was doing in the first instance, which was to bring that age to a close and to release the people of God into the messianic age fully. Now, okay, now that's probably a bit more than three minutes. Now, the astute and those who have read this amongst you will say, well, some of the words that Jesus says don't neatly fit in with that idea. And I would agree. And when you interpret a prophetic passage, one illustration I've given is a bit like this. You know you go to the seaside. Anyone been to Landodno recently? Show of hands, get some participation. Now, I was never allowed to do this as a kid because my dad was really tight with the money. But uh, apparently, apparently, if, if you're from a wealthy family, you can go to the seaside and those binoculars that you look out at the sea and you want to get a, a sight of the ships or one of those kind of electric windmill things that they now park out to sea. You can put a pound or maybe two pounds, I think something around that fee, into the thing. And you can then, they, then they open the goggles for you, the... the, the, the Binocular things, they become usable, and you can look out, and you can adjust for focus, but you can look out. Now, some of the things, when you're dealing with a prophetic text in the Scripture, it's kind of like you have two lenses on different points in the distance. You can't always assume that as you're looking at it that you're always looking at exactly the same um, exactly the same destination point. It's kind of like you have sometimes one lens that's pointing in the near future and another lens that's pointing in the distant future. And you're trying to make sense of when you're looking at this picture what part is in the near view and what part is in the further distant view. You're looking through two lenses at the same time, often slightly disorientated of when the, uh, the immediate sort of distance is in view and the further, more distant distance is in view. And that's something that we, we find as a challenge when you're trying to in interpret a biblical text, one that has prophetic future significance as to determine what point in history is this pointing to? And it can be sat side by side by something that's in the near future, and then it pings over to the distant future. Now, having said all that, why does that uh, uh, um, help us to now look at what, what we do in the meantime? The reason is that it, it is a complicated topic, complicated subject. But what's interesting in its complexity is Jesus spends more time telling the church how they're supposed to live their lives as they're waiting for all of history to be wrapped up than he does explaining to them exactly when and how it will all be wrapped up. So the purpose of a lot of Jesus' teaching is rather than this is the day of the time I'm coming, this is what you need to be doing as you're waiting. So one of the ways that's most helpful for, for the church in general, I'm not saying these subjects are not good to talk about and discuss and study. I, I spend the last 20 years or so doing so. But a lot of our time should focus 
as much attention and emotional energy on what we're supposed to be doing in Jesus' until we see Jesus fully bring everything in time and history together, rather than quibbling over dates and how things fit into some sort of neat schema of history. And so we're having to, 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 to wait for Jesus to bring everything together, but recognizing that a lot of what Jesus uh, uh, um, has taught us is starting to come to pass and has already come to pass. And we have to make good use of the time that's in the middle. You know, when you have a wedding and you have the time of the ceremony and then you have the time of the reception. And there's a whole host of stuff that goes on in that period of time. And you're waiting if you're a person who's been invited to the wedding, but you're not in the photos. You just seem to be spending a lot of time kicking around and waiting. Fortunately, on our wedding day, we had a match. But I think it was, it was either Manchester United versus Liverpool or Liverpool versus Everton. Either way, that managed to hold people's attention in the meantime before the meal started. So people had something to do. But I would imagine there were times gone in the past when you didn't have TV showing football matches in the bar as part of the, the kind of the, the, the reception package where you were just killing time, waiting for the full final part of the wedding to take place. There's this moment in between. And so Jesus talks about this. He talks about this intermediary time and, it, and some other parts of the Scriptures do, and we're going to look at a few of them, as to what we need to be thinking about because we can't just be watching football until Jesus returns to continue that illustration. We need to be busy doing stuff for Jesus. So I'm going to give you quite quickly five points of how we manage this time in the middle where we're waiting for Jesus to fully wrap things up, but we know that what he prophesied has already begun. Right. The first one is this. is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. You can turn if you wish to that, uh, but I'm not going to slow down too, too much. So if you can get to it in time, good on you. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you take care for him. You made him lower than the angels for a short time, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and subjected everything under his feet. For, being in, subje- for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. And as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Okay, now out of context, that sounds like quite a complicated uh, couple of verses to to unpack. Some years ago when I read that, I assumed that the writer of Hebrews was talking primarily with Jesus in view. As soon as he gets onto the language of the Son of Man, I'm like, ah, you're talking about Jesus here being created in his incarnation, as lower than the angels, but having this rule and reign. But actually, he's talking about humanity. He's talking about you, and he's talking about me. And in fact, if you read a, a different translation, and uh, I, I got the, the message translation here, and it talks about what is man and woman that you would bother with them. And talking about humanity, talking about people. So, one of the 
ways that we should understand this intermediary period of time is that God is preparing us for ruling and for reigning. It talks about crowning him with glory and honor and leaving things that are in some degree as yet not yet subject to the people in view, humanity. So one of the ways we can begin to understand this period of time while Jesus is as yet not returned is that God is preparing you and I to share in the glory of ruling and reigning with Christ. We are not sat without responsibility or huge weight on our shoulders of what we should be doing. God has prepared for us to begin to reign and to rule. Now, it says here that there are things that are currently not yet subject to us. Now, you can look at the political landscape and know that is for sure. Most of us would not look at the problems between Russia and Ukraine and think, if I was in power, I'd leave things like that. We wouldn't, would we? We recognize there are things which are not working as they should. You can go to the supermarket and see someone having a fight, or you can see someone drive their car at high speed and knock somebody over. You think, this shouldn't be this way. Injustice happens. Problems happen. Things happen which are not good. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that humanity has this incredible responsibility where God is trying to restore us to the original reign that he had, uh, God had destined for us at the beginning. When you read in Genesis, uh, and the language that's spoken over the, the man and the woman, it talks about reigning. Go and have dominion. So actually taking authority, carrying God's glory, reigning and ruling, a part of what we are learning to do. But the jurisdiction that God wants us to take care of, rather than the political landscape, is the heart and the mind and the relationships that we have. Because you and I haven't got decisions over what happens in Ukraine. But you and I do have a decision over how we spend our day and how we treat those around us. And it's as if Jesus is saying, well, actually, the thing that I need you to begin to do now in your reigning and ruling is learn to serve and love God and learn to serve and love one another. If you can get that yourself subjected in that way, well, then the other stuff later on will be done properly because you'll understand what it's all about. So we are called in this intermediary time, in this period in between, to learn how to carry God's glory and to begin to reign and rule. But the dominion over which we get to influence are not the types of things of politics and the military type of stuff. It's over sickness. It's over infirmity. It's over the demonic. It's over our minds. It's over our relationships. This is where the reigning and the ruling begins. The second thing is that is said in this intermediary time comes through Peter. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verses 8, and I'm going to take the New Living Translation here. It says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There was a news report from a couple of weeks ago that there was a panther spotted in Warrington. Did you see the news? A panther spotting in Warrington. I was quick to think, what part of Warrington was this panther spotted in? Apparently, it was spotted, spotted near Newton, Newton the Willows. Anyone live near Newton the Willows? <laughs> Let's hope they catch the cats. You live near Newton. 
Really? <laughs> well, we can debate the, the, legi- the legitimacy of the sightings. If the Warrington Guardian says it, how could it be false? Now, they do show you some images. Of, but my point is this. If you lived in those streets and it was confirmed that that cat was going around, you would live your life mindful that there was a panther on the prowl. If you had your kids out playing, you would say, take care of the cars, don't talk to strangers, and stay away from big cats. You would orientate your life and your decision-making with a little bit of attention giving to the risk of danger from something that could potentially prowl and have a negative impact. Now, Peter's saying, don't get lazy, church. Don't put your feet up and think you're on holiday until Jesus comes back. There are things you need to be about because your enemy isn't sleeping. He's got his agenda, so don't be caught napping assuming that he's not got anything to do against you. He could do. And so in the same way as this analogy of the, of, of, of the, of the like a roaring lion, looking for someone, to, we need to be alert. We need to be mindful. We need to be prepared. How does the enemy get in? How does he get in if he can't manifest himself in such a way that makes him seem obvious that he's having an attack? Sometimes it's through things such as fear or doubt or bitterness or hurt or rejection. Those are the pathways that he will use to get in. This week, I had a real battle with fear this week. And you think, oh, you're the pastor. You can possibly battle with fear. I tell you what, I have felt very much under attack in areas of fear this week. It's been heavy on me. And it wasn't until Friday that I started to feel like I was spiritually breathing again. And it was a reminder. And someone said, it started on Tuesday and ended on Friday. And I got a message last night and saying, God called me to pray for you all week starting Tuesday. And I thought, it's funny you should say that. That's when the fear started. And it's just a recognition that there is warfare going on. That the enemy is looking to take a pop if he can. And while Jesus has yet to re- is yet to return, the enemy is going to take every opportunity he can. So Peter, being mindful of this, he tells people to stay alert. The third thing is this, is we need to stay full. I'm going to read some verses from Matthew 25 now. It says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 young ladies who took their lamps out and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. But the wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at night the cry came out, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all of the virgins, or the ten maidens, however your translation takes that, woke up and they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. Those young maidens who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, those others came out and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. 
There's a lot of theological richness to these verses, and they are an extension of what is being described in Matthew 24. But one thing that we can take from that is that those that were uh, 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 honored enough to be recognized by the bridegroom, recognized as being people who were ready, were people who had lived in preparation in expectation and making sure their lives were in whatever way they need to be full. Now, we could say the oil there represents the Holy Spirit, quite possibly so. Quite possibly so. That metaphor works in terms of the context of Scripture. But whether that's the Holy Spirit or potentially some people say that this has to do with people who are living with the teachings of Jesus because this has a a kind of an echo of Matthew 7 when Jesus says, I didn't know you to those who didn't practice his teachings. Either way, we can't simply just be going about our business, minding our own business. We need to be about the business that God has us doing. We need to be full. We need to be ready. We need to be charged up. One of the ways you can do that is at home, spending time in devotions and prayer and Bible study, getting your friends to pray for you, getting people that you know around you who you trust to speak into your life and to to, to encourage you along the pathway with God. Do what you need to do to be full because there's going to come a time when Jesus is going to look to see what you have to offer him back. Not as a way of determining whether you were saved on the basis of what you do, but as a test to see whether you were in a position to really understand the command of Jesus to come and be faithful to him, and whether you understood that in the first place. Okay, the final couple of things. Ephesians 6 verse 10. It says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this dark age, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. Continuing that idea of we're in a spiritual battle in this period of time, there comes a part of that with the responsibility on us is to begin to stand and to use the things that God has given us in order to wage warfare with God on behalf of those around us and for ourselves. As I said this week, someone messaged me yesterday, they felt God say to them on Tuesday, which is when I felt this fear kind of come on me, they had to start praying for me. And then it was Friday before it lifted. But that was somebody getting their armor on. Now you can say, well, you should have had your own armor on. That's for sure true. And I don't think I was lax in that respect. But there comes moments in battle sometimes when you still need to rely on the person to the left or to the right of you, no matter how good a soldier you are in your own right. Because we need the body of Christ to come around us and to stand shoulder to shoulder with us. I need you, you need me. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, who we know was a man who was strong in the Lord, he would often encourage congregations to pray for him. Pray for me that I might speak boldly and courageously with the gospel. He wasn't admitting that he was weak. He was just saying that by myself, I know I'm not enough. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to stand with me. 
So we have to stay strong. We have to put on this armor of God, and we've done a series about that. We have to walk with integrity. We have to use faith. We have to use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We have to speak out words of confidence in God's provision. We have to speak out words of faith that God is going to come through for us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear because we remind ourselves of God's truth. We remind ourselves that He is with us. We remind ourselves that whether we're on the mountaintop or the bottom of the valley, God has never left us or forsaken us. And these are the ways that we stay strong. We are not powerless in those moments, but shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters in Christ, we are commanded to stay strong. And the final thing uh, I'm going to share with us this morning is a verse from Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. And this is one that I am not fully yet uh, uh, um, as good at it as I should be, but I am... I am working on it. And it says this, devote yourselves to prayer. I can do that bit. Being watchful, I can do that bit. The final part in Colossians 4, 2 says, and be thankful. Now, I'm not an ungrateful person, but I don't remind myself of what I need to be thankful of as often as I probably should. I'm more aware of what I don't have than what I do have. I'm often more aware of where I haven't yet arrived at than be thanking God for where he's brought me from. And much of my emotional energy is looking for what is yet to come and what has yet to, is yet to happen rather than building my faith up on what God has already done and where he's already brought me from. And part of the strength for the journey comes from being thankful and tracing God's hand in your past when you feel uncertain about your future. That's why the people of Israel, they had so many songs about how God brought them out of Egypt and how he vanquished the Pharaoh and brought them through the Red Sea and through the desert. They brought this thing into stuff into song because they didn't have Song Pro and they didn't have the same kinds of media outlets that we have today. They, as part of their culture, they would sing songs of faith and of remembrance. So the next time something confronted them that, that felt too big for them, they didn't fall to pieces because they reminded themselves that in their story, there were some incredible moments of God's victory. And if he could do it back then, he can do it again. And so one of the ways that we move forward in this intermediary time before the return of Jesus is learning to be thankful when was the last time you sat and spent some time in prayer thanking God more for what he'd already done than what you still feel he's yet to do? I'm certainly guilty of being part of the latter. I spend more time praying over what is not yet than what has been. And it's not to get, it's not to get nostalgic about the past. It's about reminding yourselves that you're in the midst of a story that God is unfolding. And he's done some incredible things and more incredible things are yet to come. But thankfulness keeps the arteries of our hearts open and free of bitterness because we remind ourselves of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his kindness and his mercy and his generosity and his patience. And that he has brought us this far and he can take us through. 
So that's really all I wanted to say at the moment about Jesus' return. It's such a, a large subject that no 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is going to anyway do justice. But in summation, let me just say this, that Jesus is coming back. We can be sure about that. And there is no, there is no army or nation or empire or political ideology that will be sufficient to stop what Jesus does when he returns. And we're to live in such a way that we're to be ready if Jesus returns today. If Jesus, um, I've got married, I'm married now and I've got kids, so I feel like I've ticked all the boxes so Jesus can come now. When I was 18, I was like, Jesus, you hold off a bit. I'm not married, I have kids yet. That was my ambition. But if Jesus comes back tomorrow, we should be ready. This afternoon, we should be ready. All of these times, we should be ready. We should be expecting. We should be looking forward to Jesus' return. But in the meantime, God is preparing us for reigning and ruling. In the meantime, we are learning about what it means to fight in the armor of God and to pray for one another. In the meantime, we're learning what it means to be thankful and appreciative towards God for what he's done for us. We are learning to be strong and we're learning to be alert. Because when Jesus comes and everything is brought into completion, we will not have those opportunities again to learn the things that only adversity can teach us. Because you won't have any opposition in heaven. The devil will be locked up and everything will be good. You can't learn patience and resilience against evil when Jesus has come again. This is your opportunity to learn those things. Now, you might not think it's that important, but clearly Jesus does. That's why he's holding off. There's some perfecting. There's some shaping. There's some molding. There's some grit that he's trying to bring into his church so that when he finally comes to rule and to reign in a way that is visible to all, we will be prepared and ready and strong because God has used this time to build up his church. So Jesus is coming back and we don't know when. It's certainly closer today than it was yesterday. But in the meantime, we have stuff to learn to do that God is trying to teach through the adversity to make us better. Let's pray. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.